memorize as you are able for our scripture lesson from chapter 5 of the Gospel according to Matthew. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you are liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, and your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, we've been making our way through our series, The Good Life. And if you've noticed that as we have continued through the lectionary text, we're entering some teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the, maybe not the better known pieces, the Beatitudes with the blessed are thee and the uh, woe to those. But we are in a point where we have Jesus taking pieces of the law and then beginning to try and expand what it means for those who would call themselves a disciple. This section that we've read today is just one part of a series of teaching that take this one aspect of Jesus and says, please go one step further. And so the formula here is Jesus says, here is the law, and here is what else is needed to fulfill it. I'll note that the section that we did read is usually coupled with a few other verses within the lectionary, and they're grouped with uh, three more teachings, and they are categorized as adultery, divorce, and swearing oaths. And it needs to be mentioned that especially the verses on divorce have been used by some preachers and churches as a justification for staying in abusive relationships and causing great harm. And so we restate today that in no way does God call us to suffer abuse in an intimate relationship. In no way is perpetrating or receiving or continuing to receive abuse part of our covenant commitments to one another. And in no way do we believe that God has called us to stay in an abusive or broken relationship to avoid divorce or fulfill a harmful interpretation of Scripture. On a lighter note for today, Murder and anger. Right. Jesus is setting a high standard for those receiving the message. For Jesus' audience, and probably for us today, a reminder that we have a high standard of, actually a pretty low standard of, you shall not murder. Most of us can agree to that one, I think. It doesn't put us off of our seat. It's not news. I hope, and I venture a guess, and please do not correct me if I'm, long, if I'm wrong. None of us have plans for later today for committing acts of violence or murder. Okay, you just keep it to yourself. All right, we are all going to go have lunch 
and then dinner, maybe a nap, and a good night's sleep. Those are the types of plans that we have. It probably would have been the same at that time, people nervously looking at one another and silently wondering, who is he talking about? We begin in this generally agreeable state of, you shall not murder. I like how Dr. Carla Works, professor of New Testament at Wesley Seminary, describes where we go from that verse. She describes a juxtaposition of offense and punishment, where the offense seems to grow less serious or just stay the same, but the punishment seems to grow in severity. Whoever murders is liable to judgment. But if you're angry, you are liable to judgment. If you insult someone, you are liable to the courts and the council. If you call someone a fool, you are liable to hell. That sounds kind of strange. That final verse of just for calling someone a fool would be coupled with being liable to hell or a place of punishment. And I wasn't able to make it feel any more serious. I thought that if I went back and I, maybe I looked at the different translations of the word for fool or looked at the Greek, maybe we were just missing something and it actually sounds worse in Greek. It doesn't. It sounds no worse. The best I could do was get uh, moron was about the best we could get out of that. And then the best like kind of figurative uh, interpretation that I ran across would be to say, you've called someone mentally inert. And that's about as harsh as I could, as I could make it. And, it. and I'm not sure at this point if I should make a chemistry joke about inert and noble gases or if I should make a comment about Mitt Romney. So I'll just do both. <laughs> right, okay. Calling someone mentally inert feels like the type of insert that, the insult that you would hear from Senator Romney in passing. Where he just, you're mentally inert and he keeps moving. <laughs> he doesn't walk like that, I just, it's for the movement. Actually, I can tell by some of your reactions that, or lack of reaction, I probably just should have made the chemistry joke instead. There was something for everybody. It's okay. Yeah. All right. You're in there. You're here. Well, even if it doesn't feel serious to us, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't need to feel egregious enough or not to warrant a harsh punishment. If we don't feel like it's that harsh, it doesn't matter. And that's kind of the point. If you're surrounded by a culture of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as Jesus would say later in the Sermon on the Mount, then any insult can escalate from simple name-calling down the line toward violence. And this is one of Jesus' points for his community, that those who would be his followers would have greater awareness. That is, we know what leads to violence, and therefore we avoid it. In these particular verses, he's encouraging them to interpret, to interrupt anger, even just at that initial name-calling, mild name-calling phase, before it can ever devolve down this predictable path toward violence. Jesus is telling his followers that their inner life needs work. He's naming behaviors that need intervention and inviting them to a new way of thinking. We have no shortage 
of news stories of late recounting acts of violence or homicides in our local area and around the country. The research and the news excuse me, the research and the news cycles all point to an increase in gun violence in our nation and follows multiple years of record-setting gun sales and record-setting first-time gun owners. There were already over 400 million firearms in circulation in the United States, and over the past couple of years, no less than 8 million first-time gun owners amid those record sales. Reports say that the time that we go from legal gun purchase to its arrival at a crime scene is decreasing. The ATF released a study this week that said that 54% of traced firearms recovered at crime scenes, that is, just the ones you can trace, 54% had been purchased legally within the last three years. And we've had roughly three years of record sales. And this isn't even a do-away with the guns sermon. It's just to note that we have, through fear and through profit motive, placed more than enough destructive tools into the mix so that our anger can turn deadly quicker. Trends in violence around the country are sharing characteristics as well. While headline-grabbing items still tend to be larger incidents, they make up just a very small fraction of violent crime totals. And I've been reading this week news stories from Phoenix and Portland and Birmingham and Hartford and, of course, D.C. And one of the very striking shared characteristics is that a lot of the increased violence is tied to individual disputes that escalate quickly and then are followed by or part of an ongoing cycle of retaliation among groups. National trends are also similar to our local trends. Here and the Gun Violence Problem Analysis Summary Report for Washington, D.C. reports this maddening finding that frequently, quote, motive for shootings are precipitated by a petty conflict over a young woman. Almost 90% of victims and shooters are young males. Over uh, a petty conflict, a simple argument, or the now ubiquitous social media slight. Put another way, someone says, you fool, followed by a short path to gun violence. Before I make you feel too hopeless in the face of this, the data also points pretty clearly about who is at highest risk of either committing an act of gun violence or becoming the victim of an act of gun violence, and those communities basically overlap. Those at highest risk are known already to the justice system upwards of 80% of the time and had been arrested on average 11 times prior. And at any given time, there's only about 200 people in that highest risk category. And within a given year, only about 500 people. And that means that not only are the conditions that frequently lead to the majority of gun violence known, 
but the individuals at highest risk are also relatively known and small in number. So, it should stand to reason that targeted intensive solutions, not just more arrests and longer sentences, targeted intensive solutions earlier can interrupt the cycle. And those types of factors were also being reported in other areas of the country. Jesus offers his, his version of a solution to his community after outlining some of the conditions that lead from the earliest stages of anger to violence. The type of anger talked about in our scripture is a solidified anger, an anger that is set up in opposition to someone or something. There's a sort of permanency to it. Some of the scholarship around it says that it's frequently used to describe the type of anger that God has towards sin, in which case it's a good thing. And we're not being told here by Jesus to never be angry or to purge the emotion from our bodies or minds or our spirits. Any toddler parent can tell you that anger is natural and it's a little weird and it can quickly get out of hand for you or the, or the toddler, either way. Jesus and his reverse formula from name-calling to murder maps indicators that something is moving in the wrong direction with our anger. That the anger is not being set up in opposition to injustice, but in opposition toward a person or toward a group. In mapping some of the indicators, Jesus is essentially equipping his community with a, a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Today, what we would say is that we need to map our triggers that set us off on a path of anger, work to recognize them, and then utilize strategies to manage, disrupt, or control our anger. And to do so, Jesus invites us, do so before it becomes solidified or causes problematic behaviors. Jesus' encouragement is that the antidote to an anger that sets in and sets up against someone is to seek reconciliation before it's too late or at the earliest possible moment. The scripture puts it before you go to the altar. So that's weekly acts of reconciliation around anger. That takes, that takes the type of inner work that Guy and Cassandra spoke about the last couple of weeks, including deep humility, repentance, and no small amount of bravery. I just want to name a couple of things for you. We lack the tools on a massive basis, in particular in our schools, to give kids the skills they need to deal with anger. In my meetings the last weeks with council members for DC, I learned that we have vacancies, especially in middle schools, for school counselors all across the city, and job postings up and running and zero applications. Zero applications coming in 
I've learned that in order for a violence interruption team to be assigned to a neighborhood, it has to have four homicides first before a team comes in. Four homicides in a given year before a team comes in. That means that neighborhoods like Douglas in Southeast, which is right beside Brighter Day, United Methodist Church, where we go to read in the summers with Project Transformation. Douglas, who has seen 26 shootings, but no homicides, has no violence interrupters. In addition to the news reports and the studies that I've been going through in these past weeks, I've also been out with our Washington Interfaith Network partners at city council meetings with members from different wards and always high on the agenda is public safety in addition to our continued work around affordable housing and climate. We've been working to continue to draw attention to these studies and others as so many of us seek solutions for what frequently feels like an unsolvable problem. And I've been out with leaders like Reverend Ryan Nickens, who is at Metropolitan AME and is the founder of the Trayron Center. Trayron named after Ryan's siblings who died from gun violence when they were young. The center works with children and with families traumatized by gun violence to try and work through the trauma through art and through therapy. I've also been out with Pastor Delante Golston of Peace Fellowship Church, who talks about when he was a teen, having gone through a peer mediation training that was led by, quote, the big law firms, you know, the big ones, downtown on K Street. You know their names. I'm not doing a commercial for them. The big ones. They would do it of their own budget, of their own volition to set up peer mediation trainings for students who were at risk to give them the skills that they needed for themselves and for those around them. He credits that and those types of programs for helping him and others see a better way forward. There are both, Pastor Delante and Ryan, are both on the WIND public safety research team. And we listen to their voices because they live this stuff daily because they're wise about what it takes to interrupt these cycles and because it's where the data is pointing us. And because the data and the research seem pretty clear in mapping risk factors for gun violence and who's most at risk, layered solutions based on the data likely stands a good chance of success in reducing violence. Not all of it, the majority of it. In particular, for Washington, D.C., we've talked about the need to professionalize the work of violence interrupters who are currently not paid living wages, the need for additional training, and the combination of the multiple violence interruption offices under the program that is showing by the data it is working best and getting the results rather than splitting our attention and wasting money on ineffective programs. We're able to offer signing bonuses and dedicated academies for MPD. Anybody who signs up to be a police officer, there's a $20,000 signing bonus plus another $6,000 housing stipend that you are eligible for. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that's where we invest. 
We continue down the same cycle of making enforcement and punishment profitable, but we don't do the same for peace. Those types of investments, those types of professionalization are just some of the parts of a 16 recommendations from the gun violence reduction strategy strategic plan that came out last year. It is incredible to read the studies, see how specific they are about the high-risk populations, and incredible that we're not following through on it as well as we could. And I tell you this because I think you've got a much bigger role to play in the solution than you might think. Like I said, Pastor Delante cites peer mediation trainings that he took from the big law firms downtown as a way that he saw another way forward for him and those around him that helped him escape the worst consequences just of where he was growing up. That is something I know some of you have access to. One role for all of us that we can play is the use of our own voice and presence as we approach the budget season for D.C. later in March and in other localities as well, because, again, local trends are also tracking in many locations around the nation. Our voices, and when I mean our voices, I'm talking about us in this room, our voices that are described as a little bit older, no offense, Uh, wealthier, voter-engaged voices get listened to more often, whether they should or not. Your voice gets listened to more often, whether it should or not. And so we stand with leaders like Pastor Delante and Ryan, who can help us know exactly how effective our voice is can be and where to put it. We can stand alongside the data and we can stand alongside strong leadership like Pastor Delante and Ryan and the kids at Trayron and the neighbors at Peace Fellowship. It's critical because they know what's at stake and what can work to disrupt the cycles that we are in. Over the next few months, we're going to make sure to give you the opportunity, especially for those of you living in the district and in particular in Wards 2, 3, 6, and 7. If you don't know where you live and you live in the district, you can ask me. We are happy to help you sort that out, but we have those opportunities coming up to have larger meetings with our council members to talk specifically about these types of priorities. We will also pursue a time with the at-large members, and therefore, wherever you're living in the district, you can join that. And if you don't live in the district, you worship here, that matters, you're welcome. And if you ever want to try and do this in any place where the Foundry family lives, I am always happy to have that conversation of how we can do that. You have been given a high calling. 
to move well beyond the enculturated reactions that say more police is the only way forward for safety. Jesus encourages all of us to do the internal work that can disrupt anger at its earliest moments and steer us away from a cyclical path of violence and punishment. Building up the good life takes hard, intentional work, and I hope that you will continue to support each other in the struggle. Jesus' antidote offered against paths of violence is early intervention and reconciliation. The work of reconciliation to disrupt anger and violence takes a lot of internal skill that needs to be built. And we have an opportunity to push our communities to put these in place, put things in place like mentors and interventions, incredible messengers and counselors that can help build out the conditions, internal and external, that can make anything approximate to a chance at reconciliation possible. We can help our young kids by being in the schools and ourselves, learn how to mark our own triggers and to try and manage and disrupt whatever's brewing inside, even at those earliest points of someone saying, you fool. And we can encourage the types of investments that eliminate the desperate and traumatic conditions like affordability of housing, availability of food, and a no sense that the future can be better than it is today. The good life can grow from the inside out. But we need to add our voices, as is our high calling, and we need to add them now. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>